I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Check this out. How cool is this? I walked to church today. It's pretty awesome to be able to do that on a perfect day. I mean, this is one of those days, just it was all the conditions were just right for it. And a lot of you drive a, a long way to come to church, to come to Fawner Church. I'm, that makes us so happy. I'm glad of that. You're looking at a guy, I mean, the church that meant the most to me besides this one in my whole life. I drove 30 miles there and back in, in high school and college and no church besides this impacted uh, my life as much as that. But it's just fun to, I'm not going to lie, it's fun to be able to walk to church. And a lot happened on the way, just, just seven-tenths of a mile. It took me about 15 minutes. But along the way, no fooling, I was able to pet a dog, kiss a baby, dodge a sprinkler, and the Waterloos honked at me. They didn't give me a ride, they just honked at me, right? I guess they love Jesus, but they're not going to give their preacher uh, a ride. All that happened, I was intended to look, just look at my sermon notes, so I might suffer a little bit this morning, but it was just a good walk to, to work. I call it work, because that's, that's what I'm doing now. It's a labor of love, but it was fun to be able to walk, and I was reflecting on how good it, it's been to have spring break, and to be in one service today, and to have last week off, and to have Daniel Wagner preach. Were you here last week, or were you able to listen online? Would you just show him some love? Wasn't it a good message? And just being your pastor, I want to talk to you for a second. You know, we want to celebrate that. When Fondren Church got started five and a half plus years ago, one of the values was the next generation. We wanted to pour into the lives of young people. Of course, with our universities located close by, with our staff, we wanted to build into these. And so you know this, but I need a week off from time to time and you need some time off from me. And we want to have other voices. It's healthy to do that. And Daniel is such a great young leader. He and his wife, Carly, just so happy to have them. Paul told Timothy, don't let people look down on you because of your youth. Daniel quotes that verse to me a lot uh, around the office. But it's good to see, he doesn't. But it's good to just celebrate that. And so I appreciate that. Also, just looking ahead, we are going to, uh, as you're aware, we're starting this new series. And I'm going to actually start preaching a little bit. But we're, we're going to launch a series after Easter. This will take us to Easter, but we're going to walk through the book of Acts a whole lot this year. And I don't know that I've ever been more excited about a sermon series. Now, preachers say that all the time, but I'm, I'm being legit here. I don't know that I've ever been more excited about a sermon series. And each year, a lot of thought and prayer and some consultation goes into the sermon series that we do. We always, each and every year, we'll tackle a book of the Bible. If you were here around last year, you know that we jumped into James and walked through that. We do a character sketch. Last year it was Nehemiah. This year it was David in our seven-week sermon series, Flawed Hero. And then we want to look at some important doctrines and themes. That's what we'll be doing now, the theme, the doctrine of the cross. I hope in these five weeks that you'll get a greater understanding of the cross. I, I think you need, as a follower of Jesus, you need to be able to look at people and explain to them why Jesus died for you, why Jesus had to die. And that's what I hope to focus on now. But anyway, all that to say, uh, we also want to tackle some important things, some important themes and topics and cultural issues. We did it a couple of weeks ago with a standalone sermon called God and Government and how we get it wrong. We're going to look at one uh, relatively soon. We're going to break up acts, okay, and we'll look at Jesus and gender. I'm going to do a sermon on that because I promised uh, Susan Green will uh, jump on the stage one day and we're going to sit in chairs and give a talk on marriage, five things we've learned about God and marriage. So I want you to look forward to that. But if you have any ideas, anything uh, tough 
tough questions, topics, or what? Yeah, she heard about this for the first time. Uh, I'm looking at Van and Emily over here laughing, but no, we've been working on this and look forward to doing that this, this summer. But if you have something that you would like us to address or something, I would love to hear from you. Our, all of our staff are on the fondrenchurch.com webpage, and my email is up there, and I would love to hear from you just some ideas and input that you might have is something that we, we may want to address one day. All right, that's just the pastor talking. None of that's in the sermon. None of it counts for sermon time either. Take your Bibles. Here's what I'd love for you to do. Take your Bibles. If you have a copy, about two years ago, a generous donor in Fondren Church wrote a check so we could get these ESV study Bibles. Now, there's a bunch of them around, even up in the balcony. If you would grab a Bible, if you have your own, that's even better. But if you don't, grab an ESV study Bible. It's black. It's hardback. It's right there in the front of your pew. Grab one and turn to page 1023, 1023, that's my birthday, so easy to remember. Sometimes it's just easy, 1023. But turn to page 1023 because we are in a moment going to look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Understanding the cross. Does it strike you as strange that this enduring, empowering image and icon is also an instrument of death? It's an ancient execution device. And yet it has impacted lives. Millions and millions of people see it as an important, meaningful symbol in their lives. I confess to you that through the years, I've noticed certain celebrities wearing the cross or talking about the cross or highlighting it. And my thought has been reflexively, I thought, who are they? Oh, come on. Look at how they're living. Who are they to point to the cross. And then in that moment, I realized my own hypocrisy, right? You're here today. We're here today. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But does it strike you, back to my question, does it strike you as strange that this image, this icon that's been so empowering and so enduring for millions of people is also an instrument of death? One pastor I admire put it this way, he said, the cross is both a historical event that can take you to heaven and it's a current event that can help bring heaven to earth. This instrument of death, this place where Jesus died will be our focus of these five weeks. I want you to do this with me. Stand if you would. I know you just sat down a few minutes ago, but stand and let's uh, look at 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 10 to 12. I'm going to read it aloud. You follow along and then we'll read it out loud together. Is that good? 1 John 4, 10, 11, and 12. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's read this aloud together. If this is love, I'm sorry, let me, let me lead us well, okay? Let's, let's say this. We'll go slower because, well, we're doing this as a group. You ready? Am I ready? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You may be seated. This is John, 
John is, he was one of those first century fishermen who heard a man, a Messiah say, follow me. Remember I mentioned that I walked to work, I walked to church today. What if I'd have told some of those people, follow me? Nobody was going to follow me to church today, right? They were doing other things. Jesus issued that challenge and so many cast their net, left their nets, left what they were doing to follow him. Now, John was one of those first century fishermen, right? We got some fishermen in the room. John, the cool thing is he followed Jesus. It radically changed his life, but he still got to fish some. It's kind of like marriage, right? Still get to fish a little bit, just not as much. And John follows this Messiah. And he later becomes a very important voice. He writes John's gospel. You know, there are four gospels. He writes one of them, the, the gospel of John, of course. And he gives us three letters in the back. First John, second John, and third John. And these were letters written to encourage the early church to strengthen them. Not long ago, I got a letter from someone I love and, and honestly need in my life. This person wrote me, and the whole intention of their letter was to encourage me and strengthen me in a tough time. They didn't want me to fall away. They didn't want me to quit. They wanted me to know that God loved me. John was writing for this purpose. Now, in context, in history, the reign of Nero had ended. Nero had persecuted and killed thousands of Christians that had come and gone. Among them were important, the important disciples. Peter also and Paul were killed. In fact, John, many scholars believe, was the last living apostle. And John writes this letter. He writes it to strengthen. He writes it to encourage. And I want us from this passage, these three verses that we read, that we read aloud together, I want us to take three realities, okay? You note takers, that's the cue. First reality is God's, wait for it, it's God's anger. God's anger. Uh-oh. Couple of objections you might have. The first objection is the verse. All right, where is that, preacher? We just opened our Bibles. We just looked at it. Where is God's anger? You'll see the word propitiation. That's the ESV. A couple of other translations probably that you opened this morning say atoning sacrifice. That's more readily understandable to us. You may want to write that word in. Even if it's not your Bible, you can write in there. But just write next to propitiation, atoning sacrifice. John does not go past God's wrath. He says God is holy and righteous. He has a wrath and that wrath must be satisfied. The second objection beyond the verse itself about God's anger is just the vibe. Some of you may be thinking on one of these spring break Sundays, oh, Robert, we were really starting to enjoy Fondren Church. I come to Fondren and I don't feel judged. And now here you are out of nowhere dropping God's anger. The whole God is angry thing. One of the things I've done to nourish my faith and help me be the best leader that I can be is to read from a wide spectrum of writers. Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins have been three best-selling atheist authors, and I've read all that they've written. I'm not smart enough to understand it all, but I, I want to read it. I want to know what they're thinking. And in a book called The God Delusion, a New York Times bestseller, this is written. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in fiction. He's jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. 
misogynistic, homophobic racist, an infanticidal, genocidal, megalomaniac, a capricious, capriciously malevolent bully. I'm going to stop reading because he starts saying some mean things about God. Anybody in insurance in the room? Don't raise your hand because we know who you are. You call on us, right? But if you're in insurance, right? If you're in insurance, you know this, that there are natural occurrences. There are destructive natural occurrences on a global scale. Hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, earthquakes, floods. What are these called in the insurance business? They're called, say it out loud if you know it. Catastrophes, they're called acts of, acts of God. Do you know there are also other natural occurrences like sunsets and tropical breezes? No one refers to those necessarily as acts of God. Is this God? Is God angry at us? Is he destructive? You know, it's not just the angry atheists who have an ax to grind, who say these things, think these things, and feel these things about God. It's you and me. It's Jim Carrey and Bruce Almighty. It's Bruce Nolan who got to a hard place in life and he just felt like he wasn't getting a fair shake and he prayed that prayer that we all pray, God, show me a sign. If you're there, show me that you're real. I need a sign. And things weren't going his way. And he, there's that scene on the bridge, you remember this, where he throws the, the beads into the water and he just, he's, he's had it with God. You ever had it with God? And Jim Carrey shakes his fist and looks up at the heavens and cries out, smite me, almighty smiter. Is that God? Is God the almighty smiter? Does he want to get you? Here's what I want to say to you this morning about this word propitiation, about this idea of an atoning sacrifice, about God being holy and just and righteous, about his hatred for sin. I want to say just three things about God's anger. The first is you want him to be angry. The child that's abused, the elderly that's taken advantage of, corporate greed where the people at the top prey on those at the bottom, and people, because of the greed of a few, hundreds if not thousands lose their careers, their retirement savings, their safety, security, freedom, their futures. Go with me in your mind to a middle school cafeteria. Picture a boy there that doesn't have a happy home life. And teachers and coaches and other authority figures, they don't mean him any harm. There's just a bunch of students, other students that they have to attend to. And it's, there's only so many pockets of energy and time that they have in a given day. And around him in the middle school cafeteria, there are those who decide to bully him, to mock him, to say derisive words about him, to put him down. You want God to be angry. And I want to say today that God is not only angry at the bully. He's angry. He's upset at the ring, the circle of people who see and say nothing. You see, it's not just the evil that's out there that upsets God. It's the evil right here. It's not just the ugly acts of sin that we perpetuate. It's the indifference. It's the apathy, and it's looking the other way. Proverbs chapter 6 tells us there are six things that God hates. Seven are an abomination to him. 
haughty eyes, the person who looks down on other people, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that rush quickly to do evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. God, a holy God, hates. A holy God gets upset, and can I just say, the older I've gotten, the more that I live in this world, the more I appreciate the prophets. I used to run, I used to shudder, I used to close my Bible and not want to consider those words and not study it, but now I see more and more, it's just pertinent to the world in which we live. There is the justice of God, there is the wrath of God, there is God being upset. In Psalm 82, I've seen it in the Hard Places literature uh, as a prayer request for, to rally our church to pray for our team, uh, whoever you may be that's going again to Cambodia to fight sex trafficking in Phnom Penh and beyond. And there's a passage there in Psalm 82 that talks about God, about God defending the weak and the needy, about God delivering them from the hand of the wicked. Can I just say a nod if you feel me on this, but you want God. To be angry. We serve a holy God. And there's something very healthy about that. Go into the prophets. You can later look at Amos chapter 5. And God through the prophets says, I hate your religious assemblies. Could you be a little more clear? God, what are you thinking? We're gather- hey God, we're gathered for worship. What do you think about us? I hate your religious assemblies. These festivals and these gatherings that you're doing, they are a stench to me. It stinks. It stinks. Your burnt offerings, I saw someone smoking a couple weeks ago before church. He told me there's this burnt offering out on the front of the steps there. Your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, they mean nothing to me. I hate them. I don't want them. The songs and the music that you make, take it away. Because you do not care about justice and righteousness. And Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement in the 60s in the Deep South, one state over from us, said, quoting Amos chapter 5, God's justice and righteousness needs to roll like the river. And unless we roll with God's justice and his righteousness, then what we do on Sunday mornings is a stench to God. Unless you come with a sense of openness, and a sense of willingness to hear the whole counsel of God and then to do something about it and to think about those who cannot defend themselves, to think about the middle school kid that's bullied and for you to have enough of God's anger to do something about it. You want God to be angry. The second thing I want to say to you is you need to leave room for God's wrath. And you say, I know your defensiveness, I know it. You say, that's not my God. My God is a God of love. My God would not allow that. My God would not do that. I feel you. I say it too. My God is a God of love. I was reading the Psalms really, really early this morning. And it says, his love is so great for you that it's beyond the heavens. It extends beyond the stars. Now, it's 15,000 miles around the Earth's surface. It's over 250,000 miles to the moon. It's 93 million miles to the sun. And now they're discovering stars that are 23 billion miles away. God's love is so great for you that it's greater than 23 billion miles. Let's just agree, that's a lot. That's a lot. Like, I don't want to get in the way of that because that's a lot. 
Like, I don't want anything else I say to get in the way of God's love for you. It's greater than 23 billion miles. But to have love, you have wrath. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is wrath. You know, it says God is love. And aren't you glad of that? My God is a God of love. It says God is a light. God is life. God is fire. Hebrew says that he's a consuming fire. But nowhere does it say that God is wrath, but wrath is part of his character. And I want you, if I'm your pastor, I want to tell you to study the character of God. Know him. Study to show yourself approved to God. Learn the word and learn his character. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let it get beyond cognitive cranium type stuff deep into your heart where you can sit in a room and feel that he loves you and know his peace that he's working in your life. Get to know his character. If someone, a complete stranger, walks up to you and asks to borrow your car for a few hours, you are likely to say no. Even if you love Jesus, you're likely to say no. But if a good friend presents to you the same request, shame on you if you don't say yes, right? Why? Because you know them. You know their character. And if they're a close, special person, friend in your life, you know them and knowing them is trusting them. And in God's case, it's the same thing. Knowing him is trusting him and trusting him is worshiping him. Get to know the character of God, but... Let me help you. Let me, this might even add to your sanity because it helped me. In a time I was about to go crazy, understanding God and answering questions about God, leave room for two words in your discovery of his character. Unsearchable and unfathomable. Because he is. You and I, we are not built or designed to fully understand God. But here's what I want to say, back to wrath being a part of his character. To love is to have wrath. One goes with the other. I have a wife and I have three kids. I have a 15-year-old daughter. She's at the beach. I'll talk about her now. (laughs) And you're not going to tell her, right? No way she'll podcast She's coming back from the beach. She sent us pictures rubbing it in all week. But she's driving back to the beach. Let me tell you, I'm crazy about my 15-year-old daughter. Crazy about her. And if you seek to harm her, I will gladly lose my job and enter into the next season of my life in prison ministry fellowship. (laughs) Because I will crush your face. Are you with me on that? Now stop for a second. Those of you who know me, and if you don't, trust me a little bit. Give me a little benefit of the doubt. But if you know me, am I a violent person? Do I go looking for trouble? And and do I walk around the parking lots, especially in Fondren at the breweries, and am I in the parking lot or asking a guy to go outside? Am I looking for a fight? Do I I break glass bottles over? Is Is that me? Am I a violent person? Would anybody really describe me primarily as a person of wrath? I'm going to say not. But wrath as a father is a part of my character. You with me? 
leave room. God is unsearchable and unfathomable. And get to know his character, but also know the limits of your understanding of his character. But wrath is a part of it. The third thing I want to say, first, what do we say? That you want God to be angry. Second, leave room. You need to leave room for God's wrath. And thirdly, understand the difference between your anger and God's anger. Ecclesiastes 7.9, I think we have it. It says something really profound, and it's really personal for some of us. Because anger is a sense of shame and embarrassment. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. For anger resides in the lap of fools. When you're angry, when I get angry, someone has disturbed my comfort. Someone has done something wrong. Now, in this room, there are hundreds of people, and that means there's a lot of different ways that we handle our anger. For some, though, generally speaking, some are bottlers. You hold it inside. It's coming out, but you're holding it inside. And some of us, like me, are just spewers. We just let it out. But anger, our anger, expressed wrongly, is foolish. And it hurts. And anger, experts have written on this. People that know far more than I. Experts have written that anger is one of those emotions that we, in a very sick way, that we enjoy. Because in anger, we can say, I'm the victim. And when we say, I'm the victim, it's your fault. And then we get a free pass. Each and every time. I can inflict revenge on you because I'm the victim here. There's a, a part of the brain that scientists, doctors have discovered. That's the part of the brain that's triggered. It's been isolated. It triggers when you're angry or you have fear or extreme anxiety that part of the brain, and it causes really smart, educated, professional people to do stupid, irrational things. This little part of your little brain and your little skull can have a big, big impact. And it can make us do really stupid things. Ephesians 4 is one of those great passages theologically God gives us to understand human behavior. And in Ephesians 4, Paul interestingly says, in your anger, do not sin. You probably know the second half of this. He says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, on your anger. Okay, how's that working if you're married? Oops, whoops. It just warmed up in here by 10 degrees. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. But li listen to what he says. Listen carefully. In your anger, do not sin. In other words, God understands we're going to get angry. But there's two ways that you and I, and I'm guilty, there's two ways that we sin with anger. The first way, I don't even have to tell you this, but the first way is that part of the brain that we looked at. The first way is when you get angry and you shouldn't. The second way is when you fail to get angry and you should. Years ago, it was about the time... Fondren Church was getting started. I read an autobiography by Andre Agassi. Remember him? My wife, I'm not a tennis guy. Nick Crawford is. My wife grew up in a tennis community. Here's Andre Agassi. His book, you see, is called Open. 
And he really opened up his life. He talked about some of the very painful, very real, vivid, early childhood experiences of his life. He grew up out west. He's in Las Vegas. He's at his house, a palatial estate. His father is behind him. He's got that machine, that server, I guess they're called. And he's got it cranked up, like double the velocity. It's like coming out at 180 miles an hour. And he has to hit, this young boy, Andre Agassi, has to hit, uh, hit, I'm sorry, 2,000 tennis balls a day. 14,000 a week, close to a million a year, according to his father, so that he will be unbeatable. He's seven. And there's his father seated behind him, yelling at him. Andre Agassi, a very young man, became unbeatable. But he was so beat up in the process. You know, because you're a human being and you, you're, you're called to do something and to succeed and to accomplish, but you're all, you also have a soul. And his soul was beat up. He was an unbeatable tennis player, making millions, extreme fame, dating celebrities, supermodels. And in his beat-up stage, in his autobiography, he talks about finding a church in Las Vegas, a church that he loved. And he would come with a friend, and he would come late. He would wait till the singing was over and the sermon started. He really admired this pastor. He talks about him in his book, a man named JP. And he would sit in the back and he would ease out at the very end. He grew to admire the message. It was speaking into some of his deepest hurt. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. It's powerful. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It pierces to the deepest bone and marrow. And I think that at the time was what Andre Agassi was feeling for the very first time. And one night in his flashy Corvette, he pulls up to JP's house using that celebrity status card, I guess. And he pulls up and JP gets in Andre Agassi's Corvette and they go for a ride down the Las Vegas Strip and up into the mountains and then into the desert night. And they're sharing about his angst and his father's anger. And Pastor JP, his pastor, tells him, that voice that you hear, that angry voice yelling at you and harping at your small mistakes is not the voice of God. Your father loves you. Andre, Andre, through his tears, Andre, look at me. Look at me and say this. Your heavenly father loves you. Say it again, Andre. You need this. Say it again. Your heavenly father is not your earthly father. He's not angry at you. He loves you. You want God to be angry? You need to leave room for his wrath. His anger is not like your anger. In fact, we looked at this verse in Ecclesiastes, how we're quick to anger. We rush to anger. It's something that happens reflexively in our lives to our detriment seven times seven times in the bible this expression is used god is say that god is aren't you glad and here's what's interesting 
In studying this week, here's what I learned, that this phrase used seven times, that each and every time it is used in the Bible, it's paired with another phrase. And here's that other phrase. God is, say it, abounding in love. God is abounding in love. God is slow to anger and he's abounding in love. It's the second reality I want you to see from this verse. It's the most obvious one. But beyond God's anger is God's love. His love for you. His love for you that's so great. His love that has a breadth and depth and intensity to it that's beyond our comprehension. But he loves us. Now who wrote First John? John. John was the last living apostle. John wrote this to the church uh, in the community of Ephesus, in and surrounding Ephesus, which is modern-day western Turkey. And John is writing this in the midst of some people who were falling away, in the midst of the people who weren't getting it, in the midst of some people who were claiming to be Christians but weren't walking it out. They didn't love people well. And so John is pointing to the cross. He's pointing to the propitiation. He's pointing to the atoning sacrifice. And he's saying that here is this place, this cross, where there's a meeting place with God's anger and God's love. There's a famous Italian painter, Carlo Cavelli. Did I get that right, Bob? Bob is one of our elders. He's a in the visual arts department at Bellhaven. He travels to Italy every year, so he's going to see this painting far more discerningly than I am. But here is Carlo Covelli's painting in the 14th century, his depiction of Jesus on the cross. Now, Scripture tells us, history tells us that there were many people there when Jesus went to the cross. There were soldiers gambling for lots of Jesus' clothes. There were those who put him on the cross who were mocking him, those who had betrayed him. There were people there. And here this Italian artist depicts three characters. He isolates them. And of course that's Jesus in the middle. And you'll see Mary, the mother of Jesus, to one side. And then to the left side. You want to guess who that is? In this painting, that's John. The other disciples, they fled, they ran, they hid, they were scared. But John, known as the disciple that Jesus loved, John showed up for his friend's execution. And do you know that Jesus said seven things from the cross? Some of you are aware of this. He he said seven different things. that I'm sure he said more, but the writers of the Gospels and their accounts of what happened, this most revolutionary act of love ever, Jesus said seven things. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Looking skyward, he said, my God, my God, in deep anguish, why have you forsaken me? He said, I thirst. He said, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Do you know what else he said? I missed one. He said, it is finished. The seventh thing that he said, do you know what it was? 
It's depicted here. He looked at his mother and he said, behold your son. And he looked at his disciple John and he said, behold your mother. In John 19, 26, we learn that Jesus' mother went to be with and live with John and his family after this. He's saying, take care of my mom. Hey, John, what did you see that day? I saw love. I saw love. His wrath, his anger, and his love meet. A sacrifice is made. An enemy is defeated. A relationship is reconciled. And a future and a hope is offered to all the world. I see love. And John says, to those who weren't getting it, he said, look at the cross and you'll see love. Now it's mind-blowing, isn't it? But what a contrast between what we see in the glow of a screen of what Hollywood tells us love is. It's usually good-looking, tan people who have romantic feelings toward each other. And it glows at us and it makes us feel bad about what we don't have, right? Because, whoo, that's love and it tingles. And dopamine is released and it's just, it's just, there's just adrenaline rush and there's a lot of feelings there. And John is saying, let me tell you the greatest act of love. There's this pale body. And I know he's a first century Palestinian Jew, but he was dying and he died. He suffered the most brutal of deaths. And he points us the greatest act of love is a pale body whose life was given up for us. And he says that our response is the third reality from this passage. God's anger, God's love. And then our response, it's our love. And what does he say? He says this. He says this about God. He says, and this, this, by the way, is the most infuriating thing about God. Man, it gets the best of me. I stomp my feet at times. Here's the thing. You can't see God. Mm. You can't see God. But John is saying, you can see love. And that's the community. We can get a lot wrong here in the church today. We can get a lot wrong at Fondren Church. We can't get this wrong. We're called to love. And that's what the world can see. That's what the world can see. There's this account in the Gospels where Peter's with Jesus at the end of it all. And it says that he looks back and he looks at the disciple that Jesus loved. And that is who? John. And who wrote that? John. Don't misunderstand this. Here's how you need to understand this. John is saying, I could be called the associate disciple or the stud apostle, but I'm just the guy that Jesus loves. I'm, I'm just, that's who I am. I'm the guy that Jesus loved. And people who know that they are loved, love really well. Have you noticed that? Go to a playground and watch a child who loves well, who initiates conversations, 
who isn't afraid to get out of their parents' sight a little bit, who does some risky things. It's probably a kid who knows they're loved. But the timid one, the fearful one, the untrusting one, right? There's all kind of future therapy there, okay? I mean, but this person doesn't know. This person isn't sure. And John is saying, you want to know who I am? I am the person that Jesus loved. I want that to be my identity. So as a church, how are we doing? In closing, I want to encourage us to be a church that loves. And so there are three things. Three things that could um, characterize us. The first one is the worst case scenario. Nobody is looking out for anybody. That's the worst case scenario. The second one is bad. Everybody looks out for everybody. That just doesn't work. But the third one is everybody looks out for somebody. In another place that I served, I know that there was a college gal. And her heart was for sixth grade girls. That was the exact time in her life when her family was shattered and so was her heart. So she worked with sixth grade girls. The ones from healthy homes. The ones from broken homes and broken hearts. What if we were a church that loved? What if we were a church that said we want others to see God by the love that they see in us. You know that's core to how Jesus taught. A place where everybody is looking out for somebody. Would you pray with me?